0: Hi, I'm Annette Lee. Today is the first in a series of reports by students at Uni High called Immigration in the Spotlight. We profile residents of Champaign Urbana originally from faraway places and the activists who support them. This series is a supplement to our full documentary, Immigrants' Journeys Challenges and Opportunities in Champaign Urbana. See the show notes for information on how to listen. Faranak Mirofta was an Iranian political refugee who fled to Norway in 1982 and then immigrated to the United States four years later. In 1994, she became a naturalized U.S. citizen and is now a professor of urban planning at the University of Illinois.
1: I had to leave Iran because of the political violence that the state or the Islamic Republic was uh, was imposing on people, especially on, on youth that had been activists. You see, um, my sister Farshad Mirafdob, uh, we were together in political activities. She was arrested and was uh, executed, killed in the prison without any trial, nothing in a matter of three weeks after they arrested her. And I knew they were after me because from prison, interrogators would uh, call and ask for me. And my parents would say, we don't know where she is. And they didn't know where I am because I was in hiding.
0: Iran's political climate at this time was turbulent. The first demonstrations of the Iranian revolution were in 1978, culminating in the toppling of the monarchy in 1979 and the establishment of an Islamic republic by Ruhollah Khomeini. During and after the revolution, thousands died. Barafta was politically active, but as time went on, she saw her side of the movement falling apart.
1: I think the left at the time was very out of touch with majority of people, we call them masses. So we were more of an educated, elite um, university students, intellectuals. So. When the collapse happened, when they attacked all the groups and left, was decimated. It affected my political views in the sense that I I developed more critical perspective on what it was that we were wrong about, right, in in our understandings of uh, society. I think Khomeini, in a sense, was able to take leadership because he, whether this was by design or not, but he was able to speak the language of uneducated masses, people who identified with him because his grammar was also wrong. I think the, the whole, not only loss of my sister, but that whole turbulent period, um, the, the left falling apart under the attacks and pressure helped me see more critically what was wrong.
0: Life was dangerous for Meraftab during this period. She recounts a time when she narrowly avoided being taken to prison.
1: There have been several times that I think I have just had a guardian angel, whatever you call it, on my shoulder. I was arrested shortly after my sister was um, arrested and killed. I was picked up on the street because back then you, you cannot imagine the atmosphere. All the time in the streets, there would be the guards. They would just look at you and think, oh, you look like a lefty. You look like an intellectual. They didn't need to have any arrest warrant or anything. They could just put you in the car and take you. So I really thought at that moment, they will take me to prison and they will then find that I am the sister that they were looking for. And they put me in the car and as they are driving me to the station, they pass by my house and I made a plea for them to stop and see that I am innocent, I'm a normal girl, I'm. my parents are home. And they listened and they stopped and my dad was home and he managed to tell them, what nonsense, you know, she is a regular, you know, my daughter, who dares you to, to put her in your car? Da, 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 so. He put a very good uh, defense, and when they came back to the car, and I don't know how, but they just said, okay, you're released.
0: When Meraftab escaped Iran, it was a complex process, but she says she was lucky that it wasn't worse.
1: The people who would cross the border would be arrested. They would um, register them with you know these um, numbers that they put mark shot they call it and take fingerprint i believe shortly after maybe like a week after they arrested us and they took fingerprint and the mark shot and then we went into basically the process of being reviewed by by international police to make sure that we are not sought after as by by international police then they let us make phone call and i could make connection A week after that, there was a treaty between Turkey and Iran. Turkey committed to Iran that when they arrest people, they will return them to Iran. So again, it was luck that if I had crossed later, maybe I wouldn't have been allowed to continue my path.
0: Meroftab crossed into Turkey through the mountains of Kurdistan after two failed attempts. She eventually contacted the Norwegian Human Rights Commission and flew to Norway, where they granted her political asylum. In Norway, Meraftab lived with many Vietnamese refugees.
1: Back then, Vietnamese used to put their younger children uh, as a way of hoping for a better future on the boats and send them towards their Norwegian fishing vessels. And then Norwegian fishing vessels will see these boats And would bring them on board and of course what do you do with people that you have picked up from the you know on the ocean they will bring them home and then in Norway they would be given asylum so there was a very large flow of Vietnamese so-called boat people and that was the, the main uh, stream of, of refugees that were arriving to Norway. So when I arrived, I was the only non-Vietnamese that was arriving to Trondheim. I think there were about another 80 people, none of whom spoke English, and I did not speak Vietnamese, nor did I speak Norwegian. And they were very young. Uh, I remember very young, you know, like some, some of them were 10, 11, I felt bad for them because I felt, you know, I was 23 um, and they were just little, little kids, you know, that were without their parents or siblings.
0: Raftop had to adjust to living in a new country with people from another culture. At first, the cultural barriers made it very difficult.
1: The food that was served was by a Vietnamese chef that used to prepare Vietnamese food for them. I had never had any food outside Iranian food, maybe hamburger, pizza, but that is uh, not Vietnamese food. So I stopped eating by the second day or something. I didn't go down. One of those days, in the day you know, third day or something that I hadn't gone down for the food. Somebody knocked at my door, and I opened. You know, I said, "Come in" or whatever. So the chef, the Vietnamese chef, um, reached out. With very, I remember a very, very, very red apple. and he was dressed as a chef, so he took the apple to me and couldn't speak my language, I couldn't. But just the fact that he had uh, noticed that I was there and I was not eating. And that is like the language that is overcomes, you know, all the differences. Because at the very human humane level, he was saying, "I have noticed that you are not eating," and you know, and he was acknowledging that I'm I don't like his food, so he comes with a red apple, and for that reason, I just went down and I forced myself to eat, and then I started liking the food, <laughs> and now my favorite food is Vietnamese food, but those are you know like experiences that was, you had, you adapt sometimes by forced sometimes by serendipity and you discover there are all these wonderful things that you didn't, if you were closed, you would not.
0: Soon after, Maraftub came to the United States where her family had moved. She got a green card to come to California and finish her doctorate at UC Berkeley. Once again, she had to adapt to a new environment.
1: You see, I grew up in Tehran which is a bustling city, very dynamic. So I remember my biggest struggle was especially getting adjusted to this country. South Bay, Silicon Valley is where I arrived to. And I remember I kept asking for where is downtown. (laughs) And uh, my parents said, uh, downtown, what do you mean where is downtown? I said, where is the center of the city? And they kept Taking me to the grocery, where the strip mall, where the grocery and a Safeway and CVS and all of that was, and I was like, no, I'm looking for downtown. And it took, and they kept saying, no, it's that that is it. There is. and I thought, oh, they are old and they don't, you know, they are not, they they haven't yet gone to downtown. They don't know where it is. So especially, it was really strange to live in this kind of endless suburban landscape where there's houses and houses and roads and cars, but there is no center in the sense of a social center.
0: Miravta left California behind to teach at the University of Illinois in 1999, where she is now a professor of urban planning. She's married and has twin sons who went to University Laboratory High School. Although she is concerned about the current state of immigration in the United States, she is also inspired by the younger generation.
1: I'm very inspired by what youth are doing, and we have a lot of hope that you guys, the high schoolers, um, would save the day. You have the message of hope and the the vision of this is a different world is possible, and a different world is what you want. And I'm very proud and moved by the movement that high schoolers have started.
0: If you want to listen to the full documentary, learn more about immigration in Champaign-Urbana, and see all the people who made this project possible, go to will.illinois.edu slash media. This has been Immigration in the Spotlight. Thanks for listening.